You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. If you take your Bible and turn to Nahum chapter 2. Nahum chapter 2. I don't remember who, well, I don't remember his name. I can picture him, but I, I can't remember who he is. I can't remember his name. Uh, the first preacher I, I heard this, this from, and, and I've read it since many times and heard others refer to it and say this, and, and it's a good point, it's a true, and it's a right point, and so I want to reiterate it to you here this morning. That in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, we, we see this exchange between Eve and the serpent. That God had, had given his command to Adam. That Adam and Eve, they, they had any tree that they could eat from in the garden except one, except the tree in the middle of the garden, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That, that they weren't to eat from, lest they would die. And then we come to when the serpent is tempting Eve. And in the exchange there, in the first verse of chapter 3, we read, He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And what happened to Adam and Eve? They died. What do we have here? We have Satan's tactics of questioning God's word. Did God really say, you sure, God, are you sure God said, is that really God's word? Did God say that? And then you have the, the complete denial that what God said is true. You will not surely die. And listen, that again, is the same tactics, and many have pointed this out, uh, this is the same tactics that we see continuing on today uh, of Satan, questioning God's word. Did God really say that? Is, is your Bible, is that really God's word? Is that really what he said? Can we trust that? Did God really say? Did God really say that marriage is between one man and one woman? Did God really say that he created them male and female? Did God really say that we are to keep the marriage bed pure? Did God really say that Jesus is the only way to be saved? Did God really say? Is that really God's word? Did God really say that unless one trusts in Jesus as Lord and Savior, they will be condemned? Did God really say? The thing is, God did say. He did. This is his word, and his word is true. And God said what he will do. God said what is the case. There are all those who stand against him, those who do not trust in Jesus alone for salvation, they're under condemnation already. Right? That's what John 3, 7, or 18 says. John three eighteen says, right? Yeah. And he will mete out that wrath. He said he would. And for all those who do trust in Christ, he will save for all those who do trust in Christ, they are forgiven. 
Are you trusting in Christ? Then you're forgiven. God said you are forgiven. God's word is true. God will do what he says. And I think as we look at Nahum here, we we see that exact thing. God will do what he says. As we've been going through Nahum so far, uh, we saw in this opening psalm of of Nahum, in verses 2 through 8 of chapter 1, we saw the nature and the character of God. That the true and living God is not safe, but he is good. Right? Remember that? He is righteously jealous. He is vengeful. And he is full of burning wrath. Then, as we went over last week, that name applied this truth about God and that he will destroy his enemies. He will destroy those who set themselves against him. And he will also bring good news of peace for his people. As we went over this, in the context of Nahum, the people that are specifically in view who set themselves against God, whom he will destroy, uh, are the Ninevites, or the Assyrians, right? The city of Nineveh. And the people that he will fight for, the people that, that he brings the news of peace to, specifically, again, in the context of Nahum, is the his people in the the southern kingdom of Judah, right? And so as we continue here in Nahum, as we learn from this prophetic book about the God of justice and comfort, we see if you've been following Nahum closely, uh, you cannot help but be struck by the fact that God is a God of comfort because he is a God of justice. He is a God who rescues his people because he's a God who needs people need to be rescued from. Uh, we don't like to think about it that way, that we need to be rescued from God, but we do. It is his wrath that we need to be saved from. And God is a God who announces peace to his people because God is a warrior. Uh, that's what we get as we've been going through Nahum here. And so we can't, we can't miss that and seeing that the, the main idea here in Nahum... Oh, sorry. Oh, something else was supposed to be before that. I apologize. Anyway, the main idea here in Nahum, as we see, is that God brings comfort to his people by destroying their enemies. And in destroying their enemies, he does exactly what he says he will do. His word is true. And he destroys their enemies because their enemies are his enemies. And he destroys his enemies. Judah finds relief from their oppression by God destroying their oppressors. Again, just as God said he would do. God says exactly what he means. And he does what he says. And we must trust that and hold to it. And so as we go through this passage, and this is where this comes in here, As we go through this passage, in verses 1 to 2, we will see Nahum announces the attack that is going to come on Nineveh. And in verses 3 through 10, he describes that attack. So he announces it, then he describes it. And then in verses 11 and 12, Nahum mocks the supposed strength of Nineveh. And in verse 13, 
God assures that he will do just as he said he will. He will destroy Nineveh. So let's, let's read our text here for this morning. Nahum chapter 2. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! They cry, but none turn back. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion and the lioness went. Where is his cubs? Where his cubs were. With none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his cave with prey and his den with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. So as we look here at chapter 2, again in verses 1 to 2, we see the coming attack on Nineveh is announced. The day was coming when this mighty city would be destroyed and would be completely crumbled. That even when people came near to this city, uh, they wouldn't recognize that they had come near to what was once such a great place because of the utter destruction of this place, as God has announced. And again, we argued in the, the beginning of this series, the introduction to this series, that Nahum must have been writing sometime before 654 B.C. But Nineveh did not fall until 612 B.C. So he is announcing this decades before it happened. And as we have this announcement, uh, there's, there's some question on who he's referring to in some of these things. So uh, we have this scatterer is going to come against the city there in verse 1. But who is this scatterer? Well, one thing we see here is that by calling him a scatterer, it kind of infers on how he's going to come against the city. And that he's going to come against Nineveh the same way very much that Nineveh had come against other cities. That they would go in and take those people out into exile and remove them from their land and chase them out and 
all of those things. The people would be scattered because of them. Now, uh, some point out that we can understand the scatter as the human instrument uh, that God would use to destroy Nineveh. And if that's the case, well, we know then the scatterer to be the Babylonians, as even Isaiah had announced the, the, the rising of the Babylonians. We also know in history that the Medes helped them as well. But it might be more accurate to understand the scatterer as God himself coming against the Assyrians. Uh, but even if it is the human instrument that this refers to, either way, God is the one who is wielding that instrument. And so therefore, since God ultimately is the one coming against Nineveh, there is no hope for Nineveh. No hope at all. But we read here in verse 1, the call for Assyria to man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. And as a temporary longman points out, this call to prepare for battle is really nothing more than taunting the Assyrians. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you get ready. You prepare the ramparts. You watch the road. Look out. Muster all your strength. Dress up. Get, get ready. Get ready for battle. But no matter how you get ready, it doesn't mean anything. You're still going to lose. You're still going to fall. And it's just taunting them. Their destruction, again, was sure. Because the Lord was going to fight against them. He was fighting against them. And in in, in fighting against Assyria, he was fighting for his people. And so in this announcement, we see that very thing again in verse 2. He says, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For the plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Now, some suggest that the reference here to Jacob and Israel should not be understood as the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, respectfully. Normally, Jacob would refer to the whole nation of Israel, though at this point during Nahum's time and long before Nahum's time, as we've discussed, the the kingdom of Israel had been split into two kingdoms, right? And Israel also could either refer to the nation as a whole, north and south, or it could refer to just the northern kingdom of Israel. But at this point, Assyria has already destroyed the northern kingdom. And so this could be saying that God is going to restore Judah as he said he would restore the northern kingdom. And we see that that promise of restoration in Hosea. But I lean in my study towards this being the fact that God was going to restore his people to the same majesty that they had as a united nation before God's hand of judgment fell on them. His hand of judgment fell on them in in dividing the nation into two, north and south. And it fell on them and the uh, foreign oppressors coming against them, specifically again here, uh, Assyria. And coming against them so that even at this point, really, it's only the northern or southern kingdom of Judah that was still standing. But they stood as oppressed people, as enslaved people. And God is saying that he was going to restore the majesty that they had before his hand of discipline came on them. But however we understand this, we should see and recognize the futility in calling Nineveh to prepare for war. Because they were going to war, ultimately, with God. And there is no way to fight against God. 
And then we see in verses 3 through 10 that it describes the attack on Nineveh. So the, the attack is announced, and now the attack is described. And he does it with such detail, Nineveh, or Nahum does. With such accuracy of what we know took place in history. And, and therefore, some people argue that there's no way this book was written before 612 B.C., he had to have written it either when Assyria fell or shortly after it fell. But again, we made the argument for the reasons of holding to this book being written before 654. And really, the only reason to give it a later date is to deny the supernatural prophetic nature of the book. To say there's, there's no way these things could be known in such advance before they would take place. Well, there is if you believe this is God's word. Uh, There's every reason to believe that. Because God can tell us what will be before it ever is. Uh, Matter of fact, God communicates that very thing through his prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 to 10, he says, Remember this and stand firm. Call it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. And, you know, in this portion of Isaiah, what's going on here uh, in the larger context is God is being compared to the false god. God is being compared to the idols, and how the idols are nothing, because they can't really do anything. And yet God not only can do, he does do, including tell you what's going to be before it ever is. And God can tell you what is going to be before it ever is, because ultimately God's the one who causes things to be. God's the one who brings those things about. And then in the the verses that follow after this in Isaiah, we see a good example of that. And that... As Isaiah foretells the rise of the Babylonians who would conquer Assyria, he calls by name the one who would conquer them, the specific king who would come and allow his people, Judah, to go back into the land that they would be exiled from by the Babylonians. He calls that man by name, the man Cyrus. And he calls him by name 150 years before the man is ever even born. So we see happening there in Isaiah. He he calls him by name in chapter 44. How? Because this is God's word. He declares the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. Because he is God and there is no other. So we can understand this as God's word and hold to it as God's word. And again, this is his incredible word. Supernatural. As Nahum declares this vivid destruction of Nineveh decades before it ever happened. Decades before there was ever even an inkling that it could happen. And we see in verse 3 here, the shield of the scatterer's army is red and their uniforms were scarlet. So as, as this army 
is being seen at a distance. That's the picture here. This army's coming, and they're a distance away yet. There's this Red Sea coming. Their shields are red, their, their clothes are scarlet. This could be referring to the shield and their clothes being covered in the blood of the enemies that they have already slaughtered. This also could be just how they decorated themselves. They colored their shields red, they they wore red clothes, and and as I understand it, the Medes and the Babylonians both wore red to demonstrate their ferocious aggression. And so really, in any case, uh, this would be a threatening scene. This red army coming at them. And their weapons were most advanced. Uh, We see at the end of verse 3, it says, the chariots come with flashing metal. And according to John Feinberg, the chariots at that time were armed with steel blades sticking out of them and out of their wheels. And then we see the riders of the chariot, or maybe it's the infantry marching in front of the chariots. We see them with their spears. They're armed with spears. And these spears are made of cypress, which would make them strong and heavy and and not very easy to fend off. And so there's this picture of the army coming. And then you get to verse 4, and the army's here. No longer at a distance, but right outside the wall. As the scene shifts to the, the chariots racing through the streets of the suburbs just outside of Nineveh. Uh, The guards on the wall dread the the bloody Red Sea on its way, the flashing chariots far off, but suddenly now they're up close. They flicker in the sunlight like torches in the street. They dart back and forth like lightning as they take control of the area and the towns around Nineveh. And as we keep going with this, it's almost hard to follow uh, there, there's when he says he or, or they, well, who does he and they refer to? It's, it's hard to distinguish as you walk through the text here. For example, when it says he in verse 5, it's not clear who the antecedent of that is. It's not clear uh, who that's referring to. Is it, is it Nineveh's king? Is that the he there? Is it the commander of the attacking army? Is the he God? It's unclear. Who are the officers? Who are they that it refers to? Are they Nineveh's officers? Is it their army running to stop a breach in the wall? And they're, they're just so frantic about the breach that they stumble? And they fall? And they have to use a large shield to protect themselves against the, the onslaught that's coming through the breach? Or is this the attacking army trying to f- fill in and, and, and go through the breach in the wall? And they stumble because they're being attacked from above as the, the Ninevites desperately try to defend the wall. And so they stumble as they're attacked and they use a shield to protect themselves. Is that what's going on here? It's hard to say. And one commentator suggests that that's on purpose. It's on purpose to distinguish who's being talked about here in this scene. Uh, Because in in making it hard to understand, he, he draws out the feeling of chaos and confusion that is often in battle. And so you can feel the confusion. You can feel the terror. Uh, because what does confusion do when there's already an exasperated situation, when, when tensions are already high and anxiety is, is at its limit? Confusion only amps that up all the more. 
And so you can feel the tension, you can feel the confusion, you can feel the despair in the text as, as who is what and what's going on. And it's a drastic and dramatic scene. And we know what confusion does to us, right? We know the fears that can be in place. But we also know, again, as we've seen in Nahum, God brings peace to his people. Even in the midst of confusion, there is peace for us. Peace for all those who are trusting in him. Peace that God is in control and will accomplish his purposes. And that we can trust those purposes as good and right If we are His people, if we belong to Him, we can have assurance that our God is sovereign and our God is for us. But if you oppose Him, if you reject His way of salvation, if you are His enemy, then in the midst of confusion and fright and all that may go on, there really is ultimately no hope. Because if you are his enemy, God is set against you to only know his just wrath. There's no comfort for you. Here, again, the confusion of either Nineveh's soldiers running to defend the wall and stumbling, or or the, the attacking soldiers trying to run through the wall. But in any case, as, as we come then to verse 6, uh, we see this cause and effect there in the two lines in verse 6. We see that the palace melts away, and the palace melts away because the river gates were opened. I had mentioned that Nineveh sat on the east banks of the Tigris River, and the river ran close to the city wall and was a natural defense for the city. And then branching off the Tigris was two other rivers that ran through the city. And King Sennacherib, which I mentioned last week or the week before, I don't remember. But he was one of the kings of Assyria, and he had built this water system with these gates that would control how much water flowed into the city to prevent flooding. And there's historical record that suggests that Nineveh was defeated by the Tigris being diverted to flow into the city. And so uh, they must have captured these water gates that controlled the flow of the water into the city. And it's possible, too, that they diverted the water flow from the Tigris to flow all the more into the other rivers. And then as the water built up, they opened the gates and released the water into the city as a flood. And there is one ancient Greece historian, Diodorus, that said that there was also heavy torrential rains at this time, which would only cause more flooding. And if that's the case, I mean, I think we can see and, and testify to what we see throughout Scripture. God is fighting for His people. God is fighting against His enemies and His sovereignty and bringing these things about, causing all the more flooding to just wash through Nineveh. All in all, what should have been Nineveh's strongest defense, the Tigris River, ends up being the city's greatest weakness. Flood waters came rushing in, washing away the city's defense, even washing away the palace. And with the city's defense broken and washed away, 
defeat, humility, and exile would follow. Apparently, Assyria was known for fighting against its enemies in much the same way and and somehow flooding out the cities they came against. And so one pastor points out uh, that it is only fitting that Nineveh should fall in the same manner. Now, as we come to verse 7, it's not necessarily the clearest uh, what Nahum is saying here. Mostly because uh, the first word here is translated in the English Standard Version as mistress. It could be a verb, as it's translated in the NIV 11, and it says decree. Or, excuse me, it's translated as a verb. Yeah, sorry, I said that right. <laughs> so ESV is translated as a noun, NIV is translated as a verb. Uh, if it's a verb, then yes, it, it could be this decree, this announcement. If it's a noun, it could be referring to the queen of the city, or some suggest the goddess of the city, which would be Ishtar. And we mentioned last week how the defeat of a people, uh, very often those who conquered them would take their idols out of their temples and would either destroy those idols or put those idols in their own temple with their gods, showing the superiority of their gods to the gods of the people they defeated. And we mentioned last week that God himself said that he would remove Nineveh's idols. And so it makes sense that the statue of Ishtar would be carried off and the servants of her temple would mourn and beat their breasts because their goddess has been taken away. But however we understand this, in the totality of the text, the point really is that the Lord, the great warrior of chapter 1, has toppled Nineveh and brought his justice upon the Assyrians. That's the point. That's what we see here. And in verse 8, it says, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! They cry, but none turn back. Here in verse 8, this is the first time we see Nineveh specifically mentioned since the opening verse of the book, in chapter 1, verse 1. And here we see, just as water literally flowed into the city, washing away the palace and the city's defense, so then Nahum pictures the the defeated soldiers and the inhabitants of the city like water, except this time not flowing into the city, but flowing out of the city. Their officers try to stop the troops, shouting, Hold! Uh, But there's no way to stop this massive flow out of the city. There's no holding it back as Nineveh is completely abandoned to her attackers. And as we see in verse 9, how those who made their wealth off the destruction of so many others have now been destroyed themselves with their wealth left behind to make someone else rich. You see, as the city is plundered, right? The end of verse 9 There is no end to the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Uh, One pastor points out that that is not a statement of exaggeration. As they conquered people after people and plundered those people they conquered, uh, Nineveh would have been uh, a pile of wealth uh, as those treasures would have been stored there. And now they're just left for their enemy to come and, and take it for themselves. You know, history tells us that the, the Medes, they were the first ones to breach the wall. 
And they had no plans to make Nineveh a city of their own. All they cared about was the treasure that they could find there, was the riches that they could take for themselves. And they took it. They emptied out the city. And again, we need to understand, as Nahum is writing this, as he is telling of the utter destruction of Nineveh, Nineveh was standing there, high and mighty. As Nahum is going over this, the strength of Nineveh is known. The pride of Nineveh, seemingly impenetrable, seemingly without weakness, with, without any Achilles heel. Who in their right mind would think that Nineveh would ever fall? Who would think that this powerful force wouldn't last? But the decree of the Lord was such that the day was coming and Nineveh would quite literally be no more. Even in the face of this global force, Nahum could say, as we see in verse 10, that the day would come that Nineveh would be completely emptied and destroyed. Before their attackers, the Ninevites' hearts would melt, their, their knees would tremble, They would all become sick to their stomachs. And the last part there, in verse 10, it's it's hard to understand what the the Hebrew is getting at. It's hard to translate, but I think as the the ESV has it here is is really what's the point that it's trying to get to, that every face turned pale. That this city of proud, mighty men is reduced to something less than scared little children. And this is what God would do as his justice would fall on them and they would experience the the terror and the treatment that they had inflicted on so many others. And then in verses 11 through 12, we see Nahum mocks Nineveh's supposed strength. Again, as he's writing, Nineveh's standing there Nineveh is in the existence and its heyday and its strength and and seeming to have no weakness. And yet Nahum mocks their supposed strength as he talks about their destruction and the invasion as if it's, it's a present reality. But remember, it would only, it wouldn't happen until decades to come from Nahum writing. And yet he could write as if it was a reality a present reality, because he was so sure that it would happen. God was going to bring this about. And we know, looking back on history, that it did happen, just as Nahum said. And so again, Nahum mocks their strength. Uh, Apparently, the Assyrians would use a lion uh, to relate themselves to as a symbol of themselves. And a lion was a symbol of power and of a devouring force over one's enemies. And we see in verse 11, he says, Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where is the lion's den? Where is it? I can't find it. Why, Why can't I find it? Because it's not there anymore. It's gone and destroyed. That's where the lion's den is. And not only is the den gone, but the lion and the lioness, the kings and the queens, the cubs, the successors and the nobility, they're all gone. 
This self-sufficient, wicked nation has succumbed to the justice of God. And see, in verse 12, it shows the brutality of the Assyrians, not caring anything about those that they conquered, but just looking for their, their own good, their own uh, growth and, and riches and, and fulfillment as they devoured others like prey. The inhuman treatment of others is seen here when Nahum says, he filled his cave with prey and his den with torn flesh. You know, really, this could be said of of many nations throughout history. The the inhumane treatment of others, the the wickedness and self-sufficient attitude. And yet, what has been the ending of all of those nations? They all met their demise, did they not? And the nations today who plot against God and oppose Him, they should learn that it may not come today, but God's justice is coming. Every wicked, self-sufficient nation must take heed. Every wicked and self-sufficient person must take heed. God's justice is coming and God will do just what he said, which is exactly the point in verse 13. God assures that he will do this. He will destroy his enemies. Nineveh will fall. Verse 13 says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. God is saying, I will do this. And he would. And Nineveh, or Nahum, again, talked with such certainty as if it already was because he could be so certain that God would fulfill his words. Because that's who God is. God was going to do this. He would burn up their chariots. The people of Nineveh would fall to the sword. Uh, the people that they chased down as prey, they would not chase down anymore. And the messengers who would go out and, and either declare the victories of, of Assyria or those who would go out as delegates to their conquered people and say, this is what you need to do if you want to last here. Those messengers of forceful oppression would, would be silenced. They would be no more. Because God's justice would come to this people This is God's word, and God will do what he says. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this is God's word, and God will do what he says? If God says that he is going to bring his justice, he's going to pour out his wrath, he's going to destroy his enemies, guess what? He will. And guess what? He has said that that's what he's going to do that all of those who have sinned against him, who have broken his law, are under his condemnation. And there's nothing they can do in of themselves about it. He will do what he said. What else has he said? What else has his word declared? Destruction and justice for his enemies. But what else? Comfort and peace for his people, right? Right? Here with Nineveh, we saw in chapter, verse 2, 
that he's going to restore Judah as he came against Nineveh, right? And he's a God who is for his people. So there is a word of warning and a coming wrath for his enemies, but there's a word of comfort and peace for his people. He's a God of justice and a God of comfort. And for his people, he has declared peace with himself. For his people, he's declared a place with himself. For his people, he's declared good to know his glories forever. If you're one of his people. And you and I sitting here today, we know how we become one of his people, right? We know how we are no longer his enemies, but we are now friends of God, right? And it's through his son, Jesus Christ. That the wrath you and I deserve because of our sinfulness, because of our breaking of God's law that was put on Christ in our place, that he suffered the justice of God, the destruction, the wrath of God for us, that he died the death we should die, satisfying the wrath of God in our place, the justice of God. And he did not stay dead, but on the third day rose again. He rose again as our victor. He rose again as the one who brings peace with God to all who have faith in him. So if you will turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You are made the people of God. And you can know the comfort and the peace with God. And so if you are trusting in Jesus, I want to say this. This is God's word and God will do what he said. And God said that he will forgive all of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And so, my friend, no matter what your sin is, no matter what your rebellion has been, no matter what you have done as an enemy of God, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. There's no reason to to wallow in self-pity and to hold on to guilt that has been taken away from you and put on Jesus Christ. God will do what he said. We need to understand this on both sides. On the side of his wrath and his coming justice and on the side of his grace and mercy. God will do what he says. Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Do you know it in your life that this is God's word and it is true? We see clearly as God said that he would fight against his enemies. He did so. He came against Nineveh. And as God said he would fight for his people, he did. He fought for Judah. And we still look for the day of that total restoration for his people Israel. We look forward to that day, and it will be a great and glorious day. And we too can hope in that day that even though Jesus will come in wrath and destruction against all his enemies, he will set up his kingdom, and we, his people, will be with him forever. Forever. And that's why, even though, as in the song that we sang before the, before the sermon, it is well with my soul, that the words can be said, Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight, when the, the clouds be rolled back like a scroll, that the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. He will descend in wrath. And yet we can say it is well with my soul. Because we know this is God's word. And we can believe what he says, that he will do what he says. And we can hope in that if we are his people. How great and awesome is our God, a God of justice and wrath and a God of peace and comfort. Hallelujah. Praise his name. He is our great and awesome God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. 
For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.